You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. Well, today um, we're continuing our series in, in the Sermon of the Mount where um, Jesus shows us what it means to live in God's kingdom, living His way under His rule. Um, God's kingdom is the place where Jesus um, has already saved people, um, where his followers now adopt the values, they adopt the will of the king himself. Um, so Jesus has come as God's promised king. He, he begins to overturn the values of the world. Um, but remember that God's people, they have built their lives on the Old Testament. They've built their lives on the law. Um, so now Jesus, he is addressing how he relates to the Old Testament, and especially what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be righteous? Um, so if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Matthew 5 today. Um, bit of a tricky passage, so if you've got any questions, um, please text them in and we'll be unpacking this together. So let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would use your word to waken our minds and to win our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For most of life, near enough is good enough. Um, If you're a perfectionist or if you are an Asian parent, um, you might want to close your ears for a minute. But it is true. It is true. Um, Who remembers the story of Stephen Bradbury? Stephen Bradbury was a speed skater in Australia um, in the 2002 Winter Olympics. And he was in the quarterfinals of the men's 1,000 metres. And um, Steve Bradbury, he finished third. Um, which was good, but only the top two would proceed to the semifinals. Um, but luckily for him, actually, one of the races ahead of him got disqualified, allowed him to go through to the semis. Um, and in the semis, Bradbury was coming dead last. Um, but miraculously, three skaters in front of him crashed, right? They crashed. Bradbury took second place. He made it all the way to the finals. And now in the finals, Bradbury again finds himself in last place. And let's see what happens. Bradbury's the guy at the the end. (laughs) (laughs) I think over the past week, I've watched that like at least 30 times. And it's always good. I always smile. I don't know. It just gets me. Um, and in, in, in the interview afterwards, Bradbury, he actually revealed that this was his strategy all along. <laughs> right? He actually said he knew he wasn't the fastest. His words, I figured I might as well stay out of the way, be in last place, and hope that some people get tangled up. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It didn't matter that he was the oldest. It didn't matter that he was the slowest. For him, near enough was good enough. We know this too, right? We, we know that 50% is good enough to pass a subject at uni. We know that P's get degrees. If you're smart, you'll know that speed cameras have a built-in tolerance of two to three kilometres. But don't take that as permission to speed. But how about God? Is near enough good enough? Um, in Jesus' day, the, the religious heroes, they, they were called the scribes and the Pharisees. 
they were the religious guides of their time. They taught scripture. They were so devoted to scripture that they actually memorized the whole entire Old Testament. Such was their devotion to God's word. Um, with great care, they, they tried to stay pure and unstained from society. They hated secularism. People revered them, actually, perhaps in the way that we might revere Mother Teresa today. Um, people revere Gandhi or even the Pope. Um, of all people, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were seen to be the closest to God. So this is what Jesus addresses in our passage today. In the Christian life... How good do we need to be? You have no idea, says Jesus. You need to be even better than them. How could Jesus say such a thing? It's because, point one, Jesus fulfills God's standard and the Pharisees compromise God's standard. Let's see why. Um, It won't come as a shock to you that all through the Bible, we see that God is serious about holiness. God reveals himself as a moral being, right? And so as creator, he holds all of us as his creation morally accountable for their actions. Um, This concept's not new for us too. We know that as a society, we've always cared not just what we do with our individual lives, but actually we care greatly about what others do with their lives too. Because we're all moral beings. We're all moral beings. We're all made in God's image. Um, we care that we don't just cheat on a test. We, we care that other people don't cheat on a test too. That, it, it's just ingrained in us. Um, so it's no surprise then that the Old Testament will contain lots of laws, lots of commands that God wants his people to inhabit. Um, to give you an idea of how the law works in the Old Testament, um, firstly, you have the Ten Commandments. You, you probably heard of those. These are your headline, your big picture statements about the law. And what you notice about the Ten Commandments is they they can be divided into two big things. They can be divided into loving God, one to four, and loving others, five to ten. And so what sits behind these laws are actually more detailed laws as well. So we see in the Bible lots of laws about how to worship God in the temple, how to do sacrifices, which is about loving God, respecting God. And we also see lots of laws that govern Israel as a nation, that laws that protect the vulnerable, laws that punish those who harm others. So laws about how to love, laws that are about how to protect other people. You can, judge a, you can judge the state of a nation by its laws, actually. You see this all around the world, right? Where laws are loose, um, there's chaos, there is destruction. But where laws are robust, where laws actually give defence to the vulnerable, where laws promote peace and order, there is flourishing. Um, you know, we might get annoyed by the law here in Australia, Um, But we should be grateful, actually, because the law here actually promotes flourishing. That is why Melbourne is consistently the second best city in the world, because of our laws, actually, not because of the coffee. (laughs) See, these laws in the Old Testament, they actually reveal what God is like. That's the purpose of them, that he is a God of justice, that he is a God of righteousness, that he is a God of mercy. And so against this backdrop, in verse 17, this is what Jesus says, which is, the, which is the main point today. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's his way of saying the, the whole Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did not come to get rid of the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. What does this mean? Well, first, it means that Jesus upholds God's standard from the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is very clear. He does not compromise God's law. He is just as committed to holiness as God is in the Old Testament. That's why we see in verse 18, not even the smallest dot or iota, the tiniest little strokes of the pen in Hebrew, they will not be compromised. You know, sometimes as Christians, we take grace, we take our forgiveness for granted. So now that we've been saved by Christ, we use this grace sometimes as permission to sin. Um, So we say to ourselves, we convince ourselves, it's okay if I tell a small little white lie to get out of this situation because God will forgive me anyway. It's okay if I do a little dodgy on the tax return because, hey, God will forgive me anyway and I'll save a lot of money. Imagine a husband and wife, right? And, And the wife says to the husband, she says, my love for you is unconditional, that I will be loyal to you, I will be by your side no matter what. And the husband responds, thanks very much. Thank you for that. I guess because you said that, I'll go and sleep with another woman because, hey, you said your love was unconditional. It's an abuse of grace. The wife's love is not licensed to sin. The wife's love is transformational. So the husband should be in awe of this love. He should treat her even better than he did before. That's the gospel. So Jesus saves us, not that we would compromise our holiness, but that we would maximize our holiness by being transformed from the inside out. That is what the Sermon of the Mount is about. And there's a second way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So the Old Testament doesn't just reveal God's standards, but actually the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus himself. The law has a prophetic function. And so it's always pointing forward to a person who would fulfill the very purpose of the law. Think about it. If the law is actually to reveal what God is like, then surely it points to Jesus who is God in the flesh. So for instance, now all the laws about sacrifices in the Old Testament, these sacrifices are not meant to go on forever. They are pointing to a God of mercy. They're pointing to a God of justice. So Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, who is slain as a sacrifice once for all on our behalf. That is what the law points to. The Ten Commandments, they point to the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus, you remember the two great commands He gives. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as yourselves. And and that's what we saw. The Ten Commandments are all about that too. He fulfills those two. And the law of circumcision, right? The the main thing about circumcision is not the little snip snip. It's actually about a spiritual circumcision where we are united with Christ, where we now share in His death and resurrection. It's a spiritual circumcision that we look to now. Jesus signals here that in him, the function of the Old Testament law is complete. And now we look to him. 
All right, so we've seen that Jesus requires incredibly high standards of his followers because Jesus fulfills God's standard. And the other reason that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is because they compromise God's standard. So let's look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about the scribes. He's talking about the Pharisees, the religious heroes of their time. Of course, the the Pharisees, they are well aware of God's law. They trawl through the whole Old Testament and they distill the Old Testament down into 613 commands, which you must follow if God will accept you. But they didn't even stop there. The Pharisees, they take this to the next level. So concerned are they to follow this law properly and perfectly. They develop a whole new set of regulations on how to obey the Old Testament. So these are the people, they don't go one kilometre over the speed limit ever. They never touch their phones while driving. I've learnt my lesson. They never even jaywalk, not even once. How on earth could Jesus say that our virtue must exceed theirs? It's because they, they miss the entire purpose of the law in the first place. See, if what you're doing is if you are reducing the whole Old Testament, God's revelation of himself down into 613 commands, and that is all you see, you breed self-righteousness. It communicates that you just need to do these things and God will accept you. It sounds virtuous, actually. It sounds really good. But in reality, it's actually offensive to God. Um, Now that we're past Christmas, we can talk about this, but what's the deal with Santa every year, right? This is the mantra of Santa. Do good things, get good stuff. Be good, get good stuff. Be bad, get bad stuff. See, the goal is not relationship, is it? The goal is toys. If Santa didn't have presents, what would he be? He would be a creepy man in a very red suit. That is how many, many other religions around the world treat God. They treat God as a commodity, as a means to an end. But that is not Christianity. That is not Christ. No, Jesus says the law is fulfilled in him. It points not to principles. It points to a person. See, the purpose of the law is to cultivate a relationship. It reveals who God is. And it reveals how do we respond to this God who has loved us? How do we respond to him in joy and obedience? The law was actually never about earning our acceptance from God. I mean, look at what God says right before he gives the Ten Commandments. This is what he says in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. This, the God has always been a God who has saved first. So Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. What does God do? He rescues them. He brings them out of slavery. And then he gives them the law. The order is so important because it means that the law was never about proving ourselves to God. It was never about that. 
It was always about responding in love, in responding in obedience to the God who had already given them everything. God's law is not a surface level checklist to tick. It penetrates the heart. It points to relationship. So the Pharisees, they are misrepresenting what God is like. It wasn't just in their case that near enough isn't good enough, but actually they completely miss the point. And so now Jesus gives three examples of how this plays out. And in these three examples, I want you to notice their structure because each time Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And then after that, he says, but I say to you. Now, Jesus, he's not undermining the law itself. He said he didn't come to abolish it. But what he's doing here, he's actually exposing the Pharisees' wrongful interpretation of the law. So if you look at verse 21, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Of course, this comes from the sixth command, which is you shall not murder. And the scribes and Pharisees, they were teaching, what they were doing is they were saying, you have obeyed this command in its totality if you do not kill anyone. Um, You hear this sentiment today as well. I'm not a bad person. Sure, I've done some bad things, a bit rough around the edges. But hey, I haven't killed anyone. As if it's like a badge of honour or something. But Jesus says near enough is not good enough. You can't just fulfil the sixth commandment just because no blood is shed. No, the sixth command, my law goes so much deeper actually into the whole orientation of the heart which is one oriented towards anger and contempt. And so you see the insult in verse 22, you fool. This is a show of contempt. This is abusive language that reveals a twisted heart even before a crime is committed. So in the sixth command, murder may end, right? Murder ends with the act of killing, but actually we learn it begins with a heart of contempt. So are there certain people that just tick you off? Maybe people that make you feel bitter. Maybe it's secretly just wishing the worst for someone. Maybe it's someone that you just find when when good things happen to them, it just breaks you a little bit inside. Uh, Maybe every time you see someone, it just triggers something in you. It just triggers these negative thoughts. Or maybe you're someone that doesn't get overtly angry. Maybe it's even passive aggression. Uh, purposely embarrassing someone without them realizing. Maybe it's being sarcastic, avoiding someone, giving someone the silent treatment. No, Jesus says all of these things are actually destructive in a way that violates the sixth commandment. Do you see how Jesus cares so much about how we treat people? He even elevates here the state of our relationships over religious duty. So in verse 23, he says, if you're offering your gift on the altar, if you remember that your brother has something against you, first be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. Look at the weight that Jesus is placing on relationships. He says it's more important to be reconciled than even to turn up to church on a Sunday. Not because he's saying church isn't important, not because he's saying religious devotion is not a good thing, but that shows how much he's elevating the urgency of reconciliation. 
Jesus is always putting things in the positive. Notice that true virtue is not just refraining from bad things like murder, but it's actively seeking good things like reconciliation. That's what it means to be good. Um, Robert Mugabe, he was um, the president of Zimbabwe for nearly 40 years. Um, And though he did some good things as president, um, he's mainly known actually for violence. He's known for oppressing his opponents, for human rights abuses, and his selfishness in actually what led Zimbabwe into economic ruin. Um, Robert Mugabe, he was eventually forced out of power, and he actually only died last year. Uh, but it was very sad because the nephew, his nephew account, um, recounts actually that Mugabe died a very bitter man. It's actually a tragedy because you would think that um, on your deathbed, maybe you would reflect on your life. You might reflect on your past failures. You would hope that you would ask for forgiveness. You would seek reconciliation where that was needed. But all he could focus on was anger, bitterness against the people who took his power from him. No, see, a willingness to reconcile, it reveals a heart that has been moved by the gospel of reconciliation. And on the other side, a refusal to reconcile reveals a heart of self-righteousness. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to apologize. But the time is short, says Jesus. Jesus then moves on to look at adultery in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the same thing here. The Pharisees, now they're using the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. They're saying that all you need to do was not sleep with another person. But again, Jesus says the heart of the problem, as always, is the problem of the heart. Um, I've never received a medical degree, um, but I'm one of those people that thinks that they can solve all of their problems on Google, WebMD, whatever. Um, So recently, my wife, Nat, um, she's had a sore wrist, actually, for the last six months. And being the good husband that I am, I knew I could solve her problem. So I gave her her wrist a little massage every night and actually it decreased the pain. So I was pretty proud of myself. But actually every morning, the pain would just come back. Um, Every morning, it it was just as bad as the night before. Until we decided, okay, put down Google, let's try the physio. And going to the physio, we actually learned that Nat had a pretty badly inflamed tendon. And guess what? The very worst thing you could do for an inflamed tendon was massage. (laughs) See, I was trying to treat symptoms, okay? I, I was trying to treat what I could see, but I was not dealing with the diagnosis, the underlying problem. That's what the Pharisees do. They treat symptoms. They treat what can be seen, like physical adultery. But they don't deal with the diagnosis. They do not deal with the real problem, which is a lustful heart. You know, it's easy to think that we've never committed adultery, so that is good enough for me. But then, sometimes we're prone to click on a dodgy link on the internet. 
Sometimes we find ourselves prone to just switch the channel on TV. Sometimes we just can't stop looking at the attractive person walking down the street. These are all things that Jesus says will not form part of my kingdom. And so in verse 29, Jesus, he calls here for a very radical, a very new approach here to purity. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. There was an early um, Christian theologian. His name was Origen. And he actually took these words so seriously, so literally, that he actually castrated himself, that he would not be tempted. Is that what Jesus wants for us? Well, before you go out and get a pair of scissors, the answer is no, thank goodness. (laughs) See, Jesus isn't asking us to do these things literally, because otherwise there would literally be nothing left of ourselves. That's just what we're like. No, what Jesus calls for here is actually drastic action. Because now actually we find ourselves living in an increasingly sexualized culture where TV shows, movies, books, even music now uh, might cause us to lust. And so just a word of warning here, I think we are often overconfident actually when it comes to purity. I think we we can convince ourselves that we are stronger than we are. So we convince ourselves it's okay to watch this TV show. It's okay to be on this website. When I think we're actually more prone to lust, we're more prone to sin than we would like to think. So for some of us being drastic, this might mean actually you need to unsubscribe from Netflix. Being drastic might mean you need to deactivate that social media account especially if you know that you'll have a temptation to watch content that promotes nudity or that promotes violence against women. And just be careful because remember that what you see on TV, what you see in the movies, the actors actually can't fake nudity on the screen. Sure, they can fake violence, but you can't fake nudity. What you see is real. It is a real, it is a real thing. Um, So I was really struck um, over this last week by John Piper's words, who he was responding to a question about nudity in movies. And I want to read to you what he said. He says, The closer I get to death and meeting Jesus personally face to face and giving an account for my life, the surer I am of my resolve never to look at a TV show or a movie or a website or a magazine where I know I will see photos or films of nudity. That is my resolve. And the closer I get to death, the better I feel about that, the more committed I have become. True righteousness is not just about no adultery, but it is actively seeking purity. And thirdly, marriage and divorce. Of course, this is an incredibly complex area, and in the interest of time, we, we can't really get too much into this. Um, But actually, Jesus is not seeking to outline a comprehensive ethic of divorce. That's not his point here. But again, his point is the same. The Pharisees are twisting the Old Testament law on divorce. I mean, look at the way it's quoted in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. See, they want to make divorce easy. 
Imagine how crazy this is, right? In Jesus' day, that someone, someone actually taught that if a wife accidentally burnt her husband's food, that was grounds for divorce. Imagine how nervous you would be in the kitchen, right? <laughs> so this was the message. If you want a divorce, fine, just get a certificate. But this, again, distorts the heart of the law. See, the law seeks to uphold marriage as something precious, something to be protected, not to be treated as cheap. So spouses are not to be thrown out like pieces of property. They are not to be left financially, emotionally vulnerable. No, Jesus says, you hang in there. You persevere for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. See, the goal of marriage is to build one another up in love, to reflect Christ and the church. See, a righteousness that is skin deep is no righteousness at all. All right, so where to from here? For some of us, we actually, in a room like this, maybe we have literally killed someone. We have literally committed adultery. But actually, Jesus is not saying these things to just strangle you with guilt. No, Jesus is actually saying he's leveling the playing field. He's showing us that we all fall short. We are all sinners. We all need God's help. So this is not a moment for condemnation. This is a moment to once more feel the weight of the gospel. So our lust, our anger, our neglect of relationships, this is actually why Jesus came. He comes not because we are good, but because he is a God of grace who sees sinful people, who sees broken relationships, who dies for them, enters into it to take us out of it. The reason why Jesus speaks so harshly against self-righteousness here is because self-righteous people see no need for a saviour. So if you're not Christian here, Jesus is inviting you, please come lay down your self-righteousness. Come to, you, come to him in dependence. No, see, Jesus died. The gospel is not that we would continue to live in sin, but that we would be forgiven and that we would be transformed through it. He's saying that if you really understood the cross and the transformation, the power of the cross, you would realize we should be the most kind, the most pure, the most generous people on the planet. That is the vision that Jesus calls us to. So yeah, Jesus' words here, they're actually not just to shame us. But Jesus is showing us, he's painting a vision of a life that is so radical that it would truly bless the world. I mean, imagine a community where there was no lust, where every woman could feel so safe walking down the street at night. What a world that would be. Imagine a society with no contempt, where every conflict could be resolved in grace, where reconciliation would reign. Imagine a society where no more women are put on the street by men seeking an upgrade, where the vulnerable are always protected. No, true virtue recognises the inherent value in all people. That's the call of the Sermon of the Mount. The call of the Sermon of the Mount is in response to the gospel, 
treat people exceedingly well. That's our goal. Our goal is to live a transformed life in response to the God who will transform and has transformed us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, in many ways we feel overwhelmed um, by your righteousness, by your standards for our righteousness. Lord, we're sorry for the times when we neglect the heart of the law for a surface-level checklist, breeding self-righteousness. So, Lord, please forgive us of our foolishness. Help us to seek integrity in all areas of our lives by your help. So, Lord, now help us to move deeper and deeper into your gospel, that we would be transformed by your love, that the cross would be our motivation to reflect the heart of our Saviour. So humble us now. Help us to lay down our self-righteousness and to embrace with joy our own weakness as we depend on your sufficiency once more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thanks so much, Pastor Devon. And uh, we have a few questions. The first one is, who does brother in verse 22 refer to? Christian brothers or non-Christian brothers too? Let me read that verse. Verse 22 says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be, able, will be liable to the hell of fire. Great. Um, so remember that as we've been talking about the Sermon of the Mount, that we've been saying in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus is primarily addressing the disciples. So when, I, so when we read brother here, we can assume that he's primarily talking about people that are within the kingdom or within the church, so our, our Christian brother and sister. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't love um, our brothers and sisters, um, people that are outside of the church, outside of a relationship with Christ as well. Um, but you actually see that later on, and we'll get to that in the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus will later talk about loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. Um, so he's getting to that, actually. But here, um, I think it's primarily talking about disputes and, and relationship conflict uh, within the church. But we'll see that actually this is all-encompassing, that Jesus' righteousness um, will be completely total. Uh, thanks so much for that. And the next question is, Pastor Devon, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Even David, King David, who was a man after God's own heart, lusted and killed. How then can our heart be redeemed and when will it happen? Thank you. That's a great point because the heart is actually the central, is, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the heart is actually the central issue of righteousness. But in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see that actually our hearts are twisted. And so that, this is what the gospel must do. The gospel actually is a transformation of the heart. So we talk about justification, that, um, that God saves us, he makes us right with him. But also what's, um, what God does in the gospel is he sanctifies us, is he makes and he conforms us into his image. And part, a big part of that is actually having and adopting a transformed heart. And, and that's actually some of the promises that you see in the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah uh, 31, that you'll see that the promise of the new covenant is actually new hearts, transformed hearts, because actually the core of righteousness has to go into the heart. So, um, yeah, I would say 
Um, yes, the heart is deceitful. Yes, the heart is required. And so what the gospel must do is actually deal very aggressively and violently with the heart. And that's what we see in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, the last question we have time for is, um, it might be coming from a male perspective. How about going goo goo gaga over half-naked Korean guys in Korean dramas? Is that wrong? <laughs> Uh, I can't speak for personal experience. I don't think I've ever uttered the words goo goo gaga. Um, but yes, absolutely. So when we think about lust, um, it's not just a man thing. It's also a fem uh, females also struggle with lust. And it can manifest in many ways. So um, lust can manifest in a visual way. Lust can also manifest as imagining a life with someone that's not your, um, that's not your spouse. It can come from books where... Um, we just, yeah, we, we're fantasizing about a life with someone else. Um, so it can come in all shapes and forms. So, yeah, I wouldn't, um, I don't think you could rule it out. I don't really know what Goo Goo Gaga means, but I'm guessing it's excitement. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely, I would say. Um, yeah, watch, your, <laughs> watch yourselves with the Korean men with their half-naked T-shirts. Uh, thanks, Pastor Devon. That's all we have uh, questions we have time for. There are other questions that have come in. So if your question hasn't been answered or you have a question, please do come and speak with Pastor Devon at the end of the service. Thank you. Mm -hmm.